is actually our first book study that we're launching into as a church. Um, we have been working through kind of like a basics sermon series. We've been talking about things like uh, what are elders, what are deacons, what is the gospel, what is God's word, what is the mission of God, things like that. <coughs> Excuse me. By the way, I'm not sick. I have the strongest allergies I've had in my life right now. Um, these Palo Verde trees are wrecking me. Um, but yeah, we've been working through this basic sermon series where we've been kind of identifying like what are the marks of, of the church, how do we know that we're a church, those sorts of things. And then now we are diving into our first book of the Bible, um, which will be the primary form to our preaching here at the table. We'll work through scripture book by book, verse by verse. In Philippians, um, Nick was actually the one who had selected this to be our first uh, book together. And uh, I, the more I dove into it, I realized just how opportune this would be for us to have this be our first book study as a church. Um, it's a shorter letter. Um, we are actually going to read it together tonight, a little later on. It'll, it'll only take 10 or 11 minutes to read it out loud. Um, but it's a little letter that the Apostle Paul wrote right towards the end of his life. And we'll talk more about that and some of the implications of it and why I think it's an excellent book for a young church plant to study together. But nevertheless, we are about to embark on a journey through a letter that was written 2,000 years ago. So why should we even endeavor to read it together? Why should we read it? Well, I already mentioned it once. This was written by the Apostle Paul. And if you're not familiar with who Paul was, Paul was... Originally, just like all of us actually, he's an enemy of Jesus who after encountering the risen Christ in this astonishing way, he gets converted and then his whole life is spun around in a 180 and he devotes the rest of his life to the mission of God. And as we read in the book of Acts, which is kind of like the historical book for the New Testament, we see this guy Paul traveling all over the place taking the message of Christ's life, death, and resurrection to both Jews and Greeks in just about any corner of the world that he can get his, his little hands on. And we see him taking multiple missionary journeys where he'll go out and he'll travel for a long time and visit as many different cities as he can. and He'll kind of come back to his home base of either Jerusalem or Antioch. And uh, after kind of Paul's first big journey of traveling around planting churches in a bunch of cities in, in what we would call Asia Minor. He comes back and um, there's some councils that go on that we'll talk about some other time. But it says in Acts chapter 15 verse 36 after some time had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, his friend let's go back and visit the brothers in every town where we have preached the message of the Lord and see how they're doing. So it's like one of the original just kind of checkup visits. I had the opportunity to go on a, a mission trip one time where we did just that. There was a bunch of small uh, churches that had been planted in this rural part of a foreign country. And literally all we were doing was just going to see them and say hi and like be a support to them and not necessarily come in with an agenda of something that we were going to do for them or do to them, but just simply be there. And it seems like that's what Paul and Barnabas were going to do, which is just go visit these people that they loved. <clears throat> so Paul does that. 
he leaves and uh, he, he takes off. And this is actually where he meets his disciple Timothy on this visit. Um, one of the first places he goes, he encounters this young man named Timothy who Paul takes under his wing and he starts training him to be a church planter and to uh, really follow in Paul's footsteps as Paul follows in Christ's footsteps. And uh, so they're traveling around Asia Minor, visiting all these churches, and it feels to them, they don't, it doesn't feel this way, it straight up says that the Holy Spirit prevents them from going a couple different places, and they're not quite sure why, they're, they're hitting dead ends left and right. And then all of a sudden, one night, Paul gets a dream or a vision. Acts chapter 16, uh, verses 9 through 15, if you want to turn there, it says, During the night, a vision appeared to Paul. A Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. Now, I don't have a map for you, but just imagine that uh, Paul and Timothy and Silas are on a piece of land that's over here, and then there's some water, and then there's Macedonia. So it would have taken several days for them to travel over to this, to this land where he's receiving this vision that he's being called there. So, uh, verse 10, after he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to evangelize them. Then, setting sail from Troas, we ran a straight course. So imagine that imaginary little map that I just drew for you. I know it's just it's like clear as day in your mind. Uh, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, the next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philip. So, Samothrace is like a little island in the middle. So they stop off there, get a cheeseburger, and then they head over to uh, Neapolis, which is like a coastal city. And then they take a, a Roman road, so like this really nice road. They walk into Philippi, which is kind of like the big city in this area. And it says it's a Roman colony, which is a leading city of that district of Macedonia. We stayed in that city for a number of days. Now, Paul's pattern whenever he goes into a new city is he always wants to try to find the Jewish people first. He had the most commonality with them, and he saw his mission as um, bringing the gospel both to Jews and Greeks, but to Jews first. So he goes, and he's looking for where the Jewish people were. And it sounds like they didn't have their own synagogue here, so there wasn't a lot of Jews. Um, but they found a place where women were going to pray uh, on the Sabbath. So on the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate by the river where we thought there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was spoken by Paul. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, If you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Boom. Church just got planted. Paul's in Philippi for like three or four days, and he's already got a community of believers gathering. And, uh, and it's happening fast. This lady, Lydia, is converted, and she was undoubtedly like the head of her household in this case because her whole household is baptized. Um, so believers are now gathering in the house of Lydia. Paul and Silas and Timothy are there, as well as Lydia and everyone in her house, and word has to be spreading. And we know from Paul's previous missionary journeys that the next step to his kind of church planting 
steps was to identify elders in this community. And so that's what he would have been doing now is figuring out who are going to be the leaders of this new church. So then something kind of goes wrong. Um, kind of a nice story up until then, super easy going. Paul has a habit of just getting uh, like just beat to death like all the time. And uh, it hasn't happened yet, so I'm sure he's just kind of like watching, watching his back. Sure enough, it says now in verse 16, Once as we were on our way to prayer, a slave girl met us who had a spirit of prediction. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation are the slaves of the Most High God. And she did this for many days. That would be real creepy if you had somebody following you around yelling that out. Hey, this person right here, they're a slave of the Most High God. And it would be annoying after a while. And sure enough, Paul was greatly aggravated and turning to the Spirit said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out right away. Now what happens next helps us understand the people of Philippi better. And it's a big reason of why I'm telling you this big story is because if we're going to read for the next number of weeks a letter written to a people in a city 2,000 years ago, to the degree that we understand like who they were and what made them tick, it'll help us understand this letter a lot better. So how did the people of Philippi tick? Well, what happens next is uh, we see that the people who were living in Philippi were very profit-driven. And profit lost was not going to fly with them very well. So it says, when her owners saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace. Now, Philippi had like this really impressive marketplace. There was these six columns that led into the entrance, entrance way into the marketplace. And because of its position in, in the country where it was, it was a big trading site. So there's just a lot of commerce going through there. And the city had also been granted the status of a Roman colony in the past. And the people there loved Rome for it. I mean, these people were like big Rome fans. Um, they were, the people who lived there were granted the ability to purchase and own land uh, and had other benefits of being Roman citizens. So they were wealthy. They had a lot of opportunity for wealth. And they really loved Rome. So much so that in addition to the traditional paganism and idol worship that you would have had in any city, they engaged in what we would refer to as the emperor cult, which means that they worshipped Caesar as God. And before we get to, like, wow, that's weird, profit-driven and worshipping political leaders as gods sounds awfully close to the culture that we live in. So bear that in mind forever. Um, next, we see that when Roman superiority is lost, that doesn't fly either. In verse 20, bringing them before the chief magistrates who were apparently in the marketplace, they said, these men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans to adopt or practice. All for like casting a demon out of a girl? I mean, like, why, how could, why do they cross these people so, so like strongly? The answer is, is because the power of Jesus Christ was just confirmed. 
you have this little girl following around these apostles, and she's saying, who apparently a girl who predicts the future correctly because it makes her, her slave owners wealthy, she's saying, hey, these people are servants of God. And then Paul says, turns around and says, uh, yeah, you're right. I command you in the name of that God, Jesus Christ, to come out of her. Now, I think Paul may have been drawing the Philippian church's memory to this when he starts his letter to them. So verse 1 of Philippians is Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, which is not a like out-of-the-ordinary way for Paul to write a letter, but I think for the Philippians church, they would have been like, oh, he's talking about that time when that slave girl followed them around. He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm that guy. I'm the one who's the servant of Christ Jesus. Now, the reason why this is so striking for the people in Philippi is because Jesus Christ and his gospel is directly in opposition to the authority of Caesar. Now, Paul and his team have been going around and they've been preaching the gospel to the people in Philippi. And just like we talked about last week, that gospel includes Jesus Christ being crowned as king of the world. Now, not long before Jesus was born, another man was born. Uh, the new Caesar, I think it was about 14 years before Jesus was born, Caesar Augustus was born. And when he was born, this edict went out to all of like, the Roman peoples, uh, basically saying, hey, reset your calendars so that, that your calendar year starts on his birthday. And I want to read you this message that would have gone out to all the, the provinces. Listen to this. This is unreal. <clears throat> Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue, that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelling even our own anticipations, surpassing all previous benefactors, and not leaving to posterity any hope of surpassing what he has done. And since the birthday of the God, Augustus, was the beginning of the gospel for the world that came by reason of him. That word gospel is a Koine Greek term, euangelion, which was used at the time of the Roman Empire to herald the good news of the arrival of a kingdom. The reign of a king who was going to bring a war to end so that all people of the world who surrendered and pledged allegiance to that king would be granted salvation from destruction. This is how the Roman Empire was already talking about their Caesars. So this is why it's so striking then when the book of Mark starts out that way. Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the euangelion, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I mean, this is slap-in-the-face material, like right out of the gate. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. That's the very nerve that Paul is touching here. Jesus didn't, uh, the offense didn't stop with Jesus. 
It continues with all of his followers. And I, I want to like pause and ask the question, like, are we willing to touch that same nerve if we're saying that we're Christians and we're saying that we're telling people the gospel? And I think that there's like two dangers here. One is some people in here like to defy authority like out of principle. That might be you. You might just be like, oh, man, somebody told me to do something. Like, I don't like that at all. And hearing this element of the gospel might like kind of light a fire in that part of you that's like maybe not healthy, where like you're just going to use that to defy all authority when actually authority is something that God has instituted and is like a good part of creation. So if that's you, careful. But the only way we see Paul challenging Rome is by proclaiming Christ as king. He's not marching around and going, hey, we're going to keep going until we kill Caesar or something like that. All he's doing is saying, wrong story, Christ is king. And so I think then maybe there's others in here who are so unwilling to be combative that we're in danger of actually never handing our neighbor the complete gospel because we have a, a fear of rejection. And so we, we engage with our neighbor. We, we tell them parts of the gospel, like, like Jesus loves you and things like that. But, but maybe you never told your neighbor that he's actually the king of the world and like what that would actually mean. Not just as a platitude of something that we say, oh yeah, Jesus is king. But no, he's actually really the authority. So, Paul preaches that gospel, and surprise, surprise, he's arrested and gets the crud beat out of him. So, they don't like the fact that they lost their prophet. They don't like the fact that Roman authority is being challenged. So they put him in jail. They take him and Silas. They put him in jail. And that night, there's this big earthquake. And if you've read the story, it kind of might ring a bell. The... Uh, the gates to like their cell comes open and the jailer comes in and he's just like oh no like i'm gonna die and they share with him the gospel and he's converted um and then after he accepts christ him and his whole household are baptized which now makes twice that a whole family is baptized on the profession of the family leader's faith in this city and that's something we might talk a little bit more about as we move through philippians that's an important thing to know so then the next day, the leaders of the city are like, oh, shoot, we kind of want you to just like leave our city. So they're like, how about you guys just like go out the back door? Like, we'll forget about it. And Paul then uses that whole Roman thing again. He's like, well, actually, uh, me and Silas, we're Roman citizens, so you're going to escort us out yourselves. So they're like, oh, great. So they do it. They escort them out of the city, and Paul goes on his way. That's the last time that we like, see a direct account of Paul being in Philippi. But as we read through the New Testament, we get other hints and clues that on a couple different occasions, Paul is able to kind of return to this little church plan of his. And we learn that these Macedonians here, these Philippians, financially supported his future ministry efforts. So sounds like it was just like a real sweet church that didn't have any like super huge bumps in the road. And they just started supporting Paul from then on out. So let's jump ahead 13 years now. 13 years later, from that original encounter with this church, where is Paul? 
If you want to turn, if you have your Bible open, you can turn to Acts 28, which is right, it's, uh, we're going to look at verses 30 and 31, which is the last two verses of the book of Acts. Paul, skipping ahead in the story, has really kind of got himself in hot water now, and he's under the, under the um, control of the Roman authorities. He's in Rome. He's not in prison this time, but he's under house arrest. He can't leave his house. And it says this is what he's up to. Verse 30, he stayed two whole years in his own rented house, and he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching the things concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with full boldness and without hindrance. So, he's under house arrest, and what we see happening is he's just spilling over with the gospel of the kingdom. And this is when he writes this letter. That's actually the occasion of the book of Philippians, which we're going to dive into. So knowing how prone this city was to fall prey to the idols of nationalism and hero worship and financial pursuit, you would think that this letter would be full of warnings about that. Like, hey, don't like worship Caesar. Don't, you know, don't place too much hope in Rome. Don't... Uh, don't let the love of money uh, lead you astray. We actually don't see him talking about those things at all in this letter. And if you were an alien who picked up this book and you had no idea what the Bible was, you had no idea what the book of Philippians was, you had no idea who they were, no idea who Paul was, and you just read this, the first and foremost thing that you would pick up is that whoever's writing this cannot stop talking about Christ. It's, it's literally, it's almost every sentence. And there's not a single thought in this letter that doesn't uh, speak of Christ or acknowledge him in some way. I mean, it's just Christocentric right from the beginning to the end. And the warnings that he does have in this letter are warnings against those who were distorting the person and work of Christ and his gospel. That's what Paul's concerned about. He sees that as being the primary thing. Um, He's just gushing the gospel at this point in his life, which, by the way, is the end of his life. Paul is about, to, is about to be martyred for his faith. And we see it form the center and the crux of this letter. In chapter 2, we find a poem, a Christ poem. If you turn to chapter 2, you can see it. If you have your Bible open, you might see it kind of like set aside in this poetic form, starting in about verse 5 or 6. I'll read it to you. It says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what we're seeing here is we're actually entering into this V-shaped story. It's a story that we're going to enter as we work through the book of Philippians. It's a story of downward mobility as we pattern, as we observe Christ's humility and then also his exaltation. It's like this V. But now Paul, he's writing at the end of his life, and he has been deeply shaped by walking with Christ for all these years. And we see 
Paul actually having this same kind of V-shaped downward mobility and exaltation. In chapter 3 of this letter, starting in verse 8, Paul talks about this. He says, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. So, to end, I think there's three reasons for a church plant to sit under the instruction of the book of Philippians. The first is, it enriches us with the gospel. Now, I've already said it, but Paul can't stop talking about, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> cannot stop talking about Christ and his gospel in this letter. And as we see throughout the New Testament, Paul engaging with churches of different ages, meaning like how long they've been a church, whether they're a little church plant or there's some veteran church, we see him offer the same thing. We talked about it last week when we were kind of in 1 Corinthians and Paul's telling the church in Corinth, listen, there's like one thing that I had to offer you when I was with you, and that's Christ and him crucified. That's the only thing I want to talk about. And so we see Paul doing that for a church that's been around for a while, like in, Cor- in Corinth, and the same thing to a young church plant. It's the thing that he offered the Philippian church right as they were starting, and then 13 years later he's offering the same thing, gospel only, all the time. So we will be enriched with the gospel if we study Philippians together. Second thing, it gives words to our community, or I'm sorry, second, it, it gives us a vision for the future. So uh, it gives us vision for the future in two ways. One, it gives us this corporate vision of a church walking together in the light of the gospel for years and what that could look like. This church that receives this letter is 13 years old. And what, what do they look like? What does Paul have to say to them? We actually don't see him like having to browbeat them or give them all sorts of instruction to stop doing all sorts of stuff. He's just encouraging them because they've been walking with Christ for a while together and they love each other and he knows that that love is there and they've been supporting him. So that should give us like this exciting vision for the future of what our community could look like in 13 years. It also gives us a personal, individual vision of what a life spent with Jesus looks like. We get this cool glimpse into Paul's life as he's no, he knows he's probably going to die soon and he's locked in a house and he's not complaining at all. He's just speaking the gospel with like every breath that comes out of his mouth. Whether people are coming into his house and meeting with him or he's writing letters to his friends that he hasn't seen in a while. This should be like, I think, in a way, what we should set our hearts on is that, man, if I'm going to walk with Christ for many years, I hope that I would be like sanctified in that way like Paul is, that I would be washed by the word of God over and over again in such a way that by the end of my life I look more like Christ than I did on the day that I was saved. That's a personal vision. And the final thing is I think it gives words to our community now. 
the way that we see Paul praying for people in this letter is astonishing. It's what we're going to look at next week as we read about him talking about how he's been praying for the Philippian church. And this letter is also filled with some iconic verses. Some you might, might sound familiar, like, For me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Or, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or, do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Or, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Or I consider everything to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Or don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Or finally, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and any praise, dwell on these things. These are all verses that we find in the book of Philippians. And we're going to read them in their context over the next matter of weeks as we are formed by this book and by Christ together as a community. So that's the sermon. The way we're going um, way we're going to wrap up is by reading this aloud as a church. And some of you are just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he's going to do that. Um, it's not that long, okay? Hang in there. And we're going to have a few different people read, so kind of like switch it up. Um, but I want you to like do a couple things as you're listening to this. I don't want you to read it. So if, like, if you've been reading along in your Bible, don't do that during this section. Just listen to it. Firstly, because this is how the Philippian church would have received it. They would have gotten this letter from Paul, and then someone or a couple different people would have stood up, and they would have read the letter to the church. And they wouldn't have been like, Okay, uh, Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, come back next week for more. No, they would have read the whole thing. So that's what we're going to do. So listen to that as if we're a church receiving it, because that's literally what we are. But then the next thing I want you to do is for some of you, if you have been um, under the pastoral care of Nick for any manner of years, some of you, ironically, somewhere around like 13 years, pretend you haven't seen Nick in five or six years and you know he's in prison and he just wrote a letter to you from where he's on trial. That's kind of like what it would feel like to get this letter. So if you've known Nick for a while, think about that. Or if you don't know Nick or if you haven't known him for a while, think about like a pastor that you love or just someone in your life that is meaningful to you that would be very important if you received some communication from them after a long time. Third thing is, um, obviously this can't be replicated, but I recently um, was in a class where the professor was teaching about Philippians, and he kind of phrased it like this. He's like, we're going to read it together. I want you to just kind of like listen, don't read along. And then he recited the entire thing from memory. <laughs> which I will not be doing tonight, even though I can. I, I just, I don't, you know, don't want to like flex on anybody. But um, it was so edifying. Uh, it's, I don't know if you've ever heard someone recite like a large portion of scripture, but there's nothing in it that seems like showmanship because it is immediately evident that like, oh wow, this guy has like spent a lot of time in this text and, and with Jesus. And what it did was it helped, I feel like I learned more about the book of Philippians just listening to someone recite it, then I could have like reading it myself four or five times because it had that kind of quality that like if Paul was there just talking to you, 
Um, so I, I don't know what you take away from that other than uh, it was cool. Maybe memorize Philippians over the course of the rest of your life. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it was, it was special. So I'm going to go ahead and read uh, the first chapter, and then a couple other people are going to read the other chapters. Um, and then what we're going to do is we're going to move immediately into our, uh, the rest of our worship time together. And so um, I, will, uh, I will talk about that right now. So after the fourth chapter is read, um, we're going to have a time of just silence um, where we practice a time of uh, silent confession. And then we'll read a community confession together, and I'll talk about that when we get to that spot. Um, but first, Philippians. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to think this way about all of you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and establishment of the gospel. For God is my witness how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you can approve the things that are superior and can be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has actually resulted in the advance of the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is in the cause of Christ. Most of the brothers in the Lord have gained confidence from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the message fearlessly. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and strife, but others out of goodwill. These do so out of love knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, seeking to cause me anxiety in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Just that in every way, whether out of false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice because I know this will lead to my deliverance through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always, with all boldness, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Now if I live on in the flesh, this means fruitful work for me, and I don't know which one I should choose. I am pressured by both. I have the desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that because of me, your confidence may grow in Christ Jesus when I come to you again. Just one thing. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, working side by side for the faith that comes from the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your deliverance, and this is from God. For it has been given to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, having the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Chapter 2. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So then, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. Hold firmly to the message of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I also may be encouraged when I hear news about you. For I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care about your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know his proven character, because he has served with me in the gospel ministry like a son with a father. Therefore, I hope to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. I am convinced in the Lord that I myself will also come quickly. But I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, as well as your messenger and minister to my need, since he has been longing for all of you and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was so sick that he nearly died. However, God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, so that I would not have one grief on top of another. For this reason, I am very eager to send him, so that you may rejoice when you see him again, and I may be less anxious. Therefore, welcome him in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in honor, because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up what was lacking in your ministry to me. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a protection for you. Watch out for dogs. Watch out for evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who serve by the Spirit of God, 
boast in Christ Jesus and do not put confidence in the flesh, although I once also had confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee, regarding zeal, persecuting the church, regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them filth, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Not that I have already reached the goal or am already fully mature, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I also have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, all who are mature should think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers, and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame. They are focused on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. So then, my brothers, you are dearly loved and longed for, my joy and crown. In this manner, stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge Iodia and I urge Sintich <clears throat> to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything but in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses every thought, will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, and if there is any praise, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that once again you renewed your care for me. You were, in fact, concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. <clears throat> I know both how to have little 
and I know how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by sharing with me in my hardship. And you, Philippians, know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the manner of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent gifts for my need several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek or that I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from <clears throat> Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and his glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Those brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those from Caesar's household. The Lord of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The word of the Lord. That was Philippians. <laughs> <laughs>